0: Hello. Welcome to another episode of Surgery Talks Podcast. My name is Afshin Alijani. I'm a consultant surgeon based in Dundee, Scotland. For this episode, I'll be talking to Mr. Stuart Sutti, a consultant vascular surgeon at Ninewells Hospital, Dundee. I'll be asking him about the management of patients with acute limb ischemia. Stuart, uh, today we we're going to talk about acute limb ischemia. Um, I would like to ask, uh, firstly, how often do you see this problem uh, in your clinical practice?
1: I think we're seeing it uh, less frequently now. Like, hard to give a true instance, but maybe once or twice a month, you okay. might see a, a true acute limb ischemia. Okay. I think we're seeing less because you know, we're getting much better medical management of mm-hmm. the processes that might actually cause acute limb ischemia. Okay, so if you um,
0: encounter an acute limb ischemia, what would be your kind of initial thoughts and what, how would you approach that?
1: Initial thoughts, I'd have to think, you know, overall, you've got to look globally at the patient. You've got to think, what is ultimately, you know, what has caused it and what other things may mimic it? I mean, acute limb ischemia is a sudden loss of blood or blood supply to limb. And that can either be through occlusion of your native artery or a block bypass graft. So we've got to, you know, take all that into consideration. I think at this point I just like to emphasize that it is a true acute limb ischemia is different from acute on chronic limb ischemia, which is what we're seeing more of in comparison to acute limb ischemia. And the reason to make that distinction is it's a different urgency and different management to that disease process.
0: And we're we'll so, so there's acute limb ischemia versus acute on chronic limb yeah. ischemia. So, uh, by that you mean, for example, a patient who, acute on chronic, is a patient who has a past history of, say, intermittent claudication and presents acutely yep. with that's an exacerbation of symptoms. Yep. Exactly. There's As underlying. opposed to a patient who's never been
1: complaining of any s- disease, yes. symptoms. He's so got no history of atherosclerotic disease, no prior claudication. A- and acutely presents with signs ah. and symptoms suggestive. And okay. hopefully, I mean, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll bridge that later, I hope, but uh, that's where the history and the examination can be crucial because mm-hmm. it can really help you make the distinction between the two.
0: So what would it be the causes um, for, for an acute presentation?
1: So I think the main causes we see are, are mainly cardiac. Mm-hmm. We've seen they've got this elderly population. Uh, it's the, the main thing we see is atrial fibrillation, post-myocardial infarction, valvular pathology, and really, like all the textbooks say, is an atrial hixomer, but I think I've seen one in my whole, whole life. So as a source of emboli? A source of an emboli. Yep. So the embolus is the main thing we do see. Ones from the heart, they're usually large emboli. And they'll lodge in distinct places in the arterial tree. And that, these places are inherent areas of narrowing. And that is where the arteries divide, such as the common femoral, where it divides into superficial and profunda, or the popliteal where it divides into anterior tibial. Just inherent areas of narrowing, big clots lodge, get stuck, and they can propagate. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you've got to remember, emboli could just be as blood, but it could also be air okay. or another sort of uh, fatty deposit. Mm-hmm. But the things we also see are the atheroemboli. Mm-hmm. The, these are cholesterol-rich plaques that have, you know, they've embolized from an atherosclerotic plaque. They're very small emboli. It's not so common. We, sit, we tend to see that after we've been performing interventions with wires and we might knock off a bit of plaque. We also get thromboemboli, something similar where you get a, a ruptured atherosclerotic plaque and you get a thrombus adherent to it and that thrombus propagates, almost like a big tongue can develop. And at some point that tongue will break off and move distantly. And we do see that you know from big plaques up in the aorta present with an embolus, you can't find an obvious course or cause. And you do the imaging and imaging, oh, there's an atherosclerotic plaque that's probably been the, the primary source ones we see rare are the arterial dissections so you've got to keep that in the back of the mind trauma we're seeing more of that especially the the atrogenic and you can also get external compression what like what like give us an example the last one i've seen recently was (coughs) a upper limb and he had acute limb ischemia it was very small emboli the actual primary cause was turns out to be on pathology a big lymphoma compressing the subclavian artery and it caused thrombus to develop and it just embolized distally. You also mentioned iatrogenic trauma, what would mm-hmm. be an example of that? So iatrogenic, it can be ourselves in the theatre, especially when we're doing the percutaneous over the wire interventions, we can cause sudden occlusion of an artery. We also see it following you know trauma, uh, trauma procedures such as orthopaedics, manipulating the bones, Drilling things in, plates going wrong, it can damage the vessels. So, so we do see that.
0: Okay, so um, if you were to, if you say, imagine you're receiving a phone call uh, about a patient and the query is acute limb ischemia, what are the kind of things that you would like to hear regarding the history
1: and uh, and also examination? Things we want to do are, certain, you're right, there's certain things we want to pay particular attention to. You're going to ask about the pain, classically it's a sudden onset, comes on with a bang, and it's excruciating. It happens in the peripheries, and it may then progress more centrally. It's rare for it, extremely rare for it, to be an isolated segment, such as just occurring in the thigh, and ignoring the peripheries. It can happen, I suppose, if you get an isolated embolus going down a specific artery but usually it blocks off the larger arteries and it's the distal part of the limb you feel, so it's a sudden onset excruciating pain. The pain itself is constant and it's worse on moving the muscles, whether that's active or passive movement. We also look for other things as well. Um, We look for the duration of symptoms. This is really important. It can actually help you guide management. You've also got to look for, the history might give it away as the cause. Of the acute limb. You may want to ask the patient about palpitations, any recent chest pain, sun onset, shortness of breath, or cough, any known dysrhythmias. If they're known to have a dysrhythmia, are they on an anticoagulant? What is their recent INR, for instance? It's not uncommon to see someone with known AF coming in with a subtherapeutic INR with a cardiac embolus. And then, as you mentioned before, you, you broached on acute and chronic being a, a sort of a function of native arterial disease. And I think this is where the history and examination can really come in because they are two different distinct pathologies. But we'll pay particular attention in history of things like intermittent claudication because that is a giveaway. That is a different pathology. That might be what we call a thrombosis in situ or acute and chronic ischemia where there's an underlying native arterial narrowing. becomes so critical it thromboses off. That's the history. Examination we have classically from all the textbooks are the six P's. Pain, pallor, the limb's perishingly cold, it's pulseless, develop parasisia and that can progress to limb paralysis. And I think it tends to occur along that pathway so that's the kind of a order? That'd be the order, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The pain it is intense. It affects the muscle compartments as well. When you're looking at the muscle compartments, you might get asked if you're the examining surgeon, what do the muscles feel like? Do they feel soft and fleshy? You know, Compare it with the other leg or the other arm. Or do they have a woody, uh, not woody, but a woody, tense feel? And that's a sign that there's going to be underlying muscle damage in that compartment. And that could be a sign of irreversible damage to that muscle compartment. It doesn't mean the leg's irreversibly damaged, it could just be that muscle's irreversibly damaged. The limb goes pale. Why? Well, there's no blood getting into the limb. So the limb is initially white, but also what you can see if the leg's on flat or slightly elevated, you can see where the veins have been because they're empty of blood. There's no blood getting in, so we call that venous guttering. You get a little guttering effect in the foot and the distal calf. As it progresses, some of the questions again we're going to ask to the referring, referring individual would be what is the colour of the leg now? And what we're paying particular attention, is it white or is it developing something that we call mottling? So mottling is it's a blue purplish discoloration. Again, it happens in the peripheries, working its way centrally. And we're paying particular attention to we call it blanching or non-blanching mottling. And how do we assess for that? Gentle thumb pressure over in the area of the purple discoloration. Take the thumb away. If, if the tissues underneath are white and then gradually refill with that purple colour, it's blanching. That usually means it's it's quite severe ischemia, but the limb's probably still salvageable. And then we compare that to non-blanching. So the same, same test, gentle thumb pressure to the area, but the tissues underneath don't turn white that is a sign of irreversible ischemia. And we call that non-blanching. And then further down the pathway, we have the parathesia, which can progress to paralysis. Again, sensory motor defects. They're indicative of muscle and nerve damage. The nerves really do not like a lack of blood, hence the sudden onset of pain. And if there's parathesia, the leg is probably still salvageable. When it progresses to paralysis... It depends on the extent of the paralysis, whether or not the leg's salvageable. And I suppose this is where experience of, you know, your breadth of experience over your training comes in. So those would be the key things we might interrogate a trainee on over the phone at two in the morning. And that can help us decide what we need to do. Do diabetics still get acute pain in their leg? Good question. That's, again, this can be quite difficult because there's Diabetic epidemic, mm-hmm. and one of the problems is they can actually have parasyzia as well. Mm-hmm. So some of them will have they'll have a good neuropathic problem, and they might not get the pain. However, that tends to affect mainly the toes and the forefoot. And we're talking about if there's a good going embolic source here, high up in the arterial tree, the muscles they'll still be sore. So. Mm-hmm. But it can be hard to ascertain the degree of parasitia. Yes, because they might have long standing parasitia.
0: And presumably also always be comparing all your findings with the contralateral limb.
1: I think that's important. Um, why? Like a true acute limb ischemia in a young individual, what I'd be looking for is one, a known cause for an embolism. I'd like to see a full complement of contralateral limb pulses. And with this, no history of something like intermittent claudication part of the problem we're now facing is we're getting an ever increasing elderly population that might actually have asymptomatic arterial disease underlying all this so we might not always get that now and that can be tricky because it might still be a true acute limb ischemia with an embolus on a background of stenosed arteries or is it a thrombosed stenosis in chronically diseased arteries and they're a different ball game and this is where the
0: imaging might come into that. We will we will um, come back to. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the use of handheld Doppler would that be something useful in your practice?
1: I think one of the problems with Doppler is it's how you, how you actually interpret it. We it's not uncommon to say, "Oh, I've picked up a Doppler Doppler signal." There's not a problem with the leg. If you look at somebody, they might have a chronically occluded leg artery, yet the foot's still pink there's going to be a signal due to collateralizations. What we might do, if we're using a handheld Doppler, is listen to the waveforms that are generated in the pedal vessels. And these range from monophasic to biphasic to triphasic. Triphasic and biphasic are essentially normal. Monophasic implies a very damped flow to that that periphery. Mm -hmm. And by definition, is obviously an obstruction, whether it's acute or chronic. So I think handheld Dopplers can be helpful, but they can also be unhelpful the way they're interpreted. Sure. So let's. Uh, so now we've
0: established that uh, the patient has acute limb ischemia. What What is yeah, the, the next kind of um, thought process? Um, you mentioned something about whether the limb is sal- yeah. salvageable. Is well, that? yeah? I think, yeah, true. It's. Uh, and how so? What how would you kind of distinguish salvageable with? So if you want Very good. Group, so, I,
1: again, I think it comes on the history and mm-hmm. examination. Mm-hmm. You know, is it irreversible? is a non modeling? mottling? Yeah. So, I think the first thing I would look at, you know, are we dealing with something that's salvageable, or is it non-salvageable? Mm-hmm. And thereafter, you've got to then decide what imaging, mm-hmm. what treatment modal- modalities we are. So, if it's looking at the limbs salvageable, it's a function of the history and the examination, the duration of the ischemia, uh, and the extent of the thrombus. The reason yeah. why I'd want to know. I think it's salvageable. I think attempting to salvage an irreversibly damaged limb from ischemia, it will lead to death. You're essentially reperfusing a, a badly damaged limb. There's a lot of dead tissue there. The dead tissue, you've got muscle degradation products. They're essentially toxins. And you get cardiovascular collapse. You get multi-organ failure. The renal failure yeah. goes off. Mm-hmm. Clotting goes off. Heart-lung problems. Generally, the whole body hemostasis rapidly deteriorate so it's it's crucial to make that and it can be very hard to make that judgment call so the the timing is cr- critical
0: um, what are your kind of time scale in 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 the process of management I think,
1: yeah i think time is of the essence mm-hmm. like, you know if we're going to salvage something to cook we do it the better the functional outcome of the limb I mean, it's not unknown for us to salvage them limb to find out they've got really badly damaged nerves, ischemic neuritis, they've got a nice pink foot, but it's non functioning We can break it down into time. The books, classically, will break it down 0 to 6 hours and greater than 6. I think it's a very grey area, and every patient's different. And this is where, again, the experience comes into it. I tend to break it down into up to 4 hours, 0 to 4 hours, and that's 0 as and that's the onset of the symptoms. Not the timing of emission, but the onset of symptoms. So that's
0: often by the time the patient has arrived in the hospital, that's your four hours is pretty much over, isn't it?
1: It is. And yeah. we see it a lot more now where patients are mm-hmm. sitting at home for yeah. a good six mm-hmm. to twelve hours before calling somebody. Yeah. So the, bo- the 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 clock's already ticking. Yes. The first few hours you're gonna have a white, painful foot, sensory motor defect. It, the limb's usually clearly salvageable. I mean, when I say salvageable It depends on what's needing done, but it should still be salvageable. I then say maybe four to 12 hours. It sort of straddles that six-hour period. The limb may become mortaled, but it might still blanch on pressure with minimal paralysis. The schema may be partly reversible, but it should still be salvageable. It's when you have the long delays, the greater than 12 hours, and we unfortunately do see it when the patient presents with fixed mottling, it's non-blanching, the distal compartments like the tender the are red the limb's paralysed I think that's a fairly clear cut non salvageable limb that we wouldn't attempt to reperfuse but it can be very hard at 2, 3 in the morning you don't have a good light in the ward some of the curtains are blue it makes anything look mottled so mm. it's going to have a experience comes into it so and if, if, if a limb is a
0: clearly non salvageable what, 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 what would you do
1: for that so there's two things we can do we could consider amputation and an amputation can be a good operation we've got to consider the level of the amputation and the function the patient will get afterwards but it can be a life-saving procedure or we've got to consider palliation what might drive you either way is the symptoms of science clinical examination and ultimately you've got to look at the patient I mean, you'll see in general surgery the patients becoming increasingly frail, multiple comorbidities. An amputation might not be in their best interests. So, if it is salvageable um, and
0: time is now of the essence, uh, would you image
1: these patients? Uh, Um, I would. And 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 how would you image them? So, that's a good question. It's something we commonly get asked. So, why 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 would I image? I think. When I first started out, I think if we had a, a good cause for an embolus, no signs of claudication or full complement of pulses elsewhere, we might think, okay, we can maybe crack on, do an embolectomy at 2 in the morning. Not always needing imaging, or during the day we might get an arterial duplex. I think now we've seen a lot more asymptomatic arterial disease in the background here. I think our unit's practice now is we would image them all, irrespective of what time of day they come in. Our preferred choice is based on our local expertise and what we have available would be a CT angiogram. I think it doesn't really add in much delay as long as you get the nature of the pathology and the time, the the essence of time across the radiology staff. They do it very quick. It gives you all the information you need. I would image from the diaphragm down to the toes. But it it does require access, a lot of radiation and contrast but it's a necessary evil if you want to save a leg. So CT. We can also use arterial duplex. That's very operator dependent, quick, but it, it's, um, there's a lot of, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Interpretation by the operator. Other units may use uh, an MR angiogram. We don't really have the facility to do that out of hours on a rapid uh, sequence, so we don't, we don't do that can also use the old-fashioned, which is catheter angiogram or digital subtraction, but it is invasive. And again, it needs a bit more setup. So our, our method of choice is a CT angiogram for all patients, if we're going to think about limb salvage.
0: So you for, for CT angio, what are the kind of things you'll be looking for?
1: So the CT angiogram, we're looking from the aorta down to the feet. I'm looking at, is the aorta nice and clean? Is there any signs of atherosclerosis? Because that will help distinguish the acute and chronics we're looking to see where the site of the occlusion is we're looking to see the extent of the thrombus and that allows us to plan intervention you know where we want to extract the thrombus from but I think you mentioned it before I think it is crucial with the imaging you can it will help you ascertain if there's underlying atherosclerotic disease you have to be suspicious there's an underlying stenosis there and that is a different management so once you've
0: done uh, your imaging and uh, urgently, uh, and uh, it appears that um, this limb is salvageable,
1: so what is the surgical management of that limb? Okay, okay I think, yeah. So again, it depends on the degree of ischemia. Uh, I you know do we need to retrieve the clot? And we don't always have to retrieve the clot. To obtain limb salvage. You know, an operation is, is high risk, it's high tire of surgery. And the big differentiation, differentiation we see is between the lower limb and an upper limb ischemia. The upper limb has a lot more collaterals. It may present profoundly ischemic, but after a few hours, the collaterals will kick in. Upper, upper limb. The upper yeah, limb, mm-hmm. and you, you see the arm begin to reperfuse. Yeah. And you've got to remember a lot of these patients are elderly and frail. We're not aiming for perfection. They might be better off having a limited claudicates than having a big complication. So that depends on the symptoms and the site of the embolus. You gotta see, can the thrombus or the clot actually be retrieved? If it's so distal and it's plugging off, let's say all the crural vessels all the way down into the feet with no normal vessel beyond, you've gotta be suspicious that it, you might not be able to actually salvage that. Um, and then it's how are you gonna do it? Uh, how do do it? I think the standard method, the, the one that we're all familiar with, is an open embolectomy using a Fogarty embolectomy catheter. That's just a, a little catheter with an inflatable balloon at the end. You pass a catheter beyond where you think the clot is, gently inflate it and pull it back. We've got other tricks up our sleeves now. We've got catheter-directed lysis, so you can place a catheter down into the clot and instill thrombolytic agent. That takes time not always successful. It can cause distal embolization, but we use that for acute chronics. We can do catheter aspiration. Sometimes use that for the SMA, embolectomies. Instead of big open operation, sometimes we can direct the catheter in and try and aspirate the clot out. And it's certainly one of the methods we use if we've done an angioplasty on somebody and created acute limb ischemia, we'll try and do a catheter aspiration. And we can also use a mechanical thrombolysis we get some nice devices now that will instill thrombolysis and mechanically disrupt the clot and aspirate it out but we tend to keep that for things like a prosthetic graft occlusion where you know you're not going to damage an arterial wall.
0: So let's just say the patient you've decided on a surgical approach uh, through an uh, arteriotomy could you just go through the technique um, of uh, a
1: transverse arteriotomy and how you do it? Mm. Of course. Uh, I think you've got to make sure you, you pick the appropriate site. And then it comes back, A clot's going to lodge when artery narrows. That's where the artery divides. So let's say you get clot in the common femoral, and it's extending down the superficial and the profunda. So you expose the common femoral any way you wish. There's longitudinal, there's obliques. Everyone's got their own way of doing it. And it's all about following basic arterial surgical principles, which is control the inflow. That's the blood coming down from the heart to where you want to make the cut and controlling the runoff. Because blood will come around another way and come back out the hole you made from distally. So if the common femoral, we would expose the common femoral, the origin of the profunda and the origin of the superficial femoral artery, we tend to use slings for these. We would then cite our arteriotomy just proximal to that bifurcation. Why? it's much easier then to actually direct the Fogarty catheter down the branches so you can be a bit more selective in your clot retrieval you said we do a transverse arterioply. That that is a standard teaching why a transverse arteriotomy? well if the artery is healthy you've got to think about how you're going to close the artery and when we're closing an artery we need to evert the edges so you have intima to intima and if you're using transverse it will allow you to close that artery without causing a degree of narrowing or stenosis. I think if there was a diseased artery there, we would tend to make a longitudinal arteriotomy that we might have to then patch. So once we've got everything controlled, we'd fully antiquate the patient, intravenous heparin. Dose is a bit of a we could use an ACT machine, but we range between three to five thousand units intravenously, it a one off dose. We then control the vessels, transverse arteriotomy. We would then I might practice be to check the inflow first so you, you, you choose an appropriately sized faulty the catheter you make sure the balloon's not inflated you insert the catheter always under direct vision into the lumen it's really easy to actually insert it in the layers of the artery and cause a dissection, dissection. so it's got to be truly in the lumen and pass it gently up and if it is true fresh clot with no underlying atherosclerotic disease the catheter will generally sail up and then you pass it up. There's markings on it, five-centimeter markings, based on your imaging. On the catheter. Yeah, on yeah. the catheter. So you think, I'm above the clot. I will then gently inflate the balloon whilst retracting the catheter so you can actually feel it engage the artery. I think if you just inflate the balloon when it's static, you have no idea if it's engaging. You don't want the balloon to burst or damage the artery. So gently retract it, inflate the balloon, keep it inflated, and gently retract it down hopefully with a good retrieval of clock. And I keep doing that until I have a one complete trawl with a catheter. And the inflow control is with just a sling? So the sling, so if there's thrombus there, yeah. you can sometimes, when you open up the artery, you see the thrombus pulsing. Mm-hmm. So with a sling, we would double sling it. The sling would be wrapped around the artery twice. And always you know, advise your assistant that when they do get clearance, pull up in the sling. A healthy yes. artery, it should include it. Otherwise, there will be... There'll be lots Lots of hemorrhage. Um, And then once you've got it cleared, we do the same with the runoff vessels. And that's why you make the cut just above any arterial bifurcation, because you can keep one of the bifurcation arteries closed with a sling, so the catheter will selectively go down the other one, and vice versa. And it's the same principles. Once done, most of us would tend to instill some heparinized saline down the vessels and then close the arteriotomy.
0: How would you close it?
1: depends who's doing it, depends how big it is in the size of the vessel really. The common femoral, I would, I was not cutting a corner, but I would tend to use continuous proline, something like a 6 or proline double-ended, and again, ideally when you're closing an artery or sit suturing of an artery, you want to go, the needle should always be passed from inside, I go through the intima to the outside, so you're not creating a dissection, because if you pass the needle from the outside of the artery, it comes through, you could, by, by definition or by theory, you could dissect the intima off. But if you're doing it continuous, you don't have that luxury. So you'd always go outside to in on the inflow side because the blood f- direction of blood flow will keep any intimal flap up. Yep. And then you'll go inside to out on the runoff side. Yep. Any concerns, just do interrupted for all your stitching.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the other question I was going to ask you was about anticoagulation preoperatively. Would you have... Uh, anticoagulating these patients preoperatively?
1: Good question. We get asked that a lot. Different units do different things. I think the purpose of anticoagulation preoperatively is to stop, well, try and stop that embolus propagating. But bearing in mind, if we're going to intervene, we're going to go to theatre as quick as we possibly can. Our thinking in our unit about anticoagulating them preoperatively is the patients are frail there might not be a really good candidate for general anaesthetic and they might need more than just an embolectomy they might need fasciotomies so regional anaesthesia can have a big bonus here and if you fully anticoagulated someone that puts the risks of a hemorrhage into the spinal column can be quite significant so we would tend not to anticoagulate we get to theatre as quick as we can then get a big bolus of intravenous heparin followed by formal anticoagulation but other units will use heparin infusions. Yes. Our view is it takes quite a bit of time for that heparin infusion to really get therapeutic, and then you need to reverse it to go to theatre. You mentioned fasciotomies. What is the role of fasciotomy? In? So the role of fasciotomies is when we do, if it is a true acutely mischemia, and we are successful in clearing the clot, you're going to get reperfusion of the muscles. The muscles don't like it. They will swell. They reperfuse. The muscles in the lower limb and the upper limb, they're encased in the thick fibrous compartments. That allows the muscles to work. But of course the muscles swell, the fascia of these fibrous compartments don't allow the muscle to swell, so it just starts to compress the capillaries, the veins and ultimately the arteries and you get compartment syndrome. So there's a saying, if you're going to consider an embolectomy, consider a fasciotomy. If you've considered a fasciotomy, just do the fasciotomy. Upper limb, very rarely do you need to do a fasciotomy. Me, myself, is sort of out with my remit, because it's very rare, there's also a lot of compartments in the hand that you need to consider. And our practice is to get a plastic surgical support. Or a hand, a hand surgery, specialist yeah, to, to, to come, come in and, and do that. that. Uh, what about post-operative care
0: for a patient who's gone through the procedure
1: what are the kind of things that you will be monitoring? So things we monitor are, you've got to think what's caused the embolus is usually cardiac. You know, have we got the myocardial inf- inf- you know, myocardial infarction adequately treated, is it AF controlled? Those are the things that kill the patient. So an embolectomy, has when acute the ischemia, has a mortality of about 30%. Mm-hmm. And that's not because we're bad surgeons doing a bad operation, you know, we, we're not even in a cavity. It's a function of a bad heart or bad underlying disease process that caused it. So they're not without problems. So you're looking at the cardiovascular support, you're also looking at limb perfusion. It can reocclude. you may have damaged the artery with an embolectomy. You've also got to be wary of compartment syndrome. If you haven't done a fasciotomy, we'll make sure it's written all over the op note. please beware and call me. How would I test for uh, compartments? Again the main thing is uh, clinical, it's going to be excruciating, really really painful, they won't want to move their leg, it's almost resistant to morphine. You touch one of the compartments, it tends to be the anterior compartment that suffers mm. first, you'll see it be tense, you touch it, the patient will scream. There's other methods you can do if you have like a, an arterial line set up, you can stick a needle into it and monitor the pressures pretty sore yes. but it is a recognised method mm-hmm. uh, and
0: uh, what happens if they re-clots with the re-imaging followed by surgery or
1: definitely I would re-image mm-hmm. uh, but it depends what it was if it was a true embolus, re-image you just don't know the extent of where the clot is now and it might mean it's not going to be another embolectomy you might end up having to plan for a bypass procedure so you, you want to know where you're going to get your inflow and where you're going to the bypass on
0: too. you can find other episodes of surgery talks podcast on itunes and spotify you can also follow us on twitter thank you for listening